namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa udhang dhammang sankhang The fact that uh, all of us are here in this place engaged in this path of practice, I expect, uh, means that we would all feel grateful for this teaching that we've just been reciting, the Dhamma Chakrapuatana Sutta. That the good fortune we have to be able to develop our lives around a teaching that points so directly at reality. That's what this discourse is about. And it's not the Buddha certainly was not giving us a, a feel good belief system. And the encouragement that we receive in this path of practice is to receive all the experiences we have, the agreeable and the disagreeable, consciously, and and to be willing to learn from everything. And, and since so much of life is sorting out suffering, it's a uh, great fortune that we have such a clear presentation of a path of practice which emphasizes this. There's no turning away from the pain of life, but a turning towards it, and how to train our faculties to be able to turn towards it so we can receive whatever life presents us with. For many of us, it's carrying around a burden of unreceived life, unreceived pain, Pain is natural, it comes to all of us, and stubbing your toe, or disappointment in misunderstanding, or loss, and getting sick, all of these disagreeable experiences come to all of us. And the encouragement in the Buddhist teaching is to generate an interest in learning what we need to learn. What we need to learn is how to be more honest in how we complicate life. Life is like this. There are joys and there are sorrows. There's gladness and there's sadness. There's success and there's failures. The experiences are all to be received and yet uh, for a large part of the time we are exercising our uh, abilities to control life by denying experiences that we find disagreeable and so these accumulate and, and so as the years go by we build up this burden of unreceived pain unreceived difficulty and I sometimes wonder about what happens when we lose a loved one somebody perhaps quite old and they were sick and 
it was understood that they were dying and and yet when they do die there can still be a tremendous grief and what's going on there and uh, what it seems to me is going on there is that that actual loss triggers all the previous accumulated denied moments of loss who knows how far back when, when we lose loved ones and suffer the pain of loss do we have the skill to be able to receive it and to let it move through us and teach us how to accord with life or do we work to avoid it, to lock it away and to the degree that we do lock it away then when something comes along like the loss of a loved one, there it is, it all comes back to us and we can be, if we're not careful, we can be overwhelmed by grief. So a big part of this training and this encouragement in this journey is to learn how to be more honest with ourselves about how we uh, complicate life. Life always has been this way, agreeable and disagreeable. And not many of us manage to move through this experience with equanimity, with clarity, with balance. We easily go out of balance and lose equanimity and get caught up in mm, struggling. So the Buddha didn't want us to struggle and so he gave us this encouragement to pay attention to, to suffering and there's also the uh, suggestion that when we do pay attention and there is understanding, then there can be a letting go. There can be a letting go of suffering, an ending to the struggle. So learning to be more honest, increasingly more honest about how we complicate life and turn it into a struggle, when in fact that's not an obligation. Probably some of you are familiar with that discourse, um, the Salata Sutta, uh, the, where the Buddha talks about whether we're going to suffer the pain of being struck by one arrow or the extra pain of being struck by two arrows. And the one arrow the Buddha is talking about is the normal suffering of life, like loss and pain and, and disagreeable experiences. That's, a lot of that is unavoidable. But the second arrow the Buddha was suggesting is where, through a lack of proper understanding, a lack of clear perspective, we then get lost and say, it shouldn't be this way. We complicate it. We make it much more difficult than it needs to be. And giving us this image, of course, is the encouragement to, to take care, to be present in the moment when we're confronted with difficulties, that we don't make it any worse than it has to be. Saying it shouldn't be this way, does that really help? It's likely to be an expression of our refusing to receive it and the encouragement is to receive all of it, to receive it as an experience here and now and be ready to learn what potentially we can learn from it. When I was back in New Zealand a few years ago, I think, um, if I remember correctly, somebody reported to me this radio interview that was conducted 
with uh, the Dalai Lama, who had been visiting New Zealand. And uh, as uh, interviewers sometimes do, I, I uh, understand he was prodding the Dalai Lama to get a reaction out of him. And, and he asked him uh, a pretty blunt question, saying, don't you get angry when you think about what the Chinese did to your country? And the Dalai Lama replied, he said, oh, I can't, I can't afford to get angry. If I get angry, I lose my intelligence. Getting caught up in anger is different from feeling the pain of, and the sadness of loss, you know, losing his country, losing his people, the pain of seeing the abuse that, that took place in Tibet. Of course, that's a painful experience. The Dalai Lama was training himself to not complicate it and not add to it. Now, if we don't understand this principle, then we just go through life reacting. You know, things are agreeable, we, we're all for them and we, we uh, uh, accept them and, and build on them and, and then potentially cling to them. And if they're disagreeable, then we tend to just blindly reject them. And in so doing, we divide ourselves and life becomes a, a painful struggle. For many people, it is a, a painful struggle. But does it really have to be that way? And this period of, at the moment, this period of unprecedented confusion on the planet. I say unprecedented. I mean, yes, there have been periods of, of um, disease and, and war and, and suffering, but the current connectivity, thanks to technology, brings a certain extra potency to the current crisis. And, and, but in the midst of this current crisis, it's interesting to observe how much altruism there is, how many people are are uh, exercising their kindness and generosity and consideration for others and certainly a, a beautiful thing to, to witness. However, the question arises in my mind, if being considerate leads to well-being, if being kind leads to well-being, if being generous leads to well-being, why is it that when there isn't a crisis, that so many revert to self-referencing and to meanness and to lack of consideration. That's, that's pretty regrettable. And so what's going on there? I'm not claiming to have the answer to that, but I do think it's, uh, it's really worth considering. In terms of reality, being generous and kind and, and caring it leads to well-being. And yet... I would think we'd all agree there's not an excess of, of kindness and generosity and caring in our world. There's one aspect of the Buddha's teachings which, at least in the West these days, we don't hear very much about, but uh, traditionally and certainly in the, the Buddha's teachings is very highly encouraged and considered as essential. And that's what's called, in, in the Pali tradition, it's called Indriya Sangwara. So we hear a lot about developing samadhi and developing 
wisdom and developing compassion, but as far as I can tell, there's not a lot about developing Indriya Sangwara, and yet this is essential. Indriya Sangwara, I translate as conscious composure. Conscious composure, something we can cultivate, something we have to cultivate. The opposite is, is heedless reactivity. So when uh, we hear a sound that's uh, agreeable or disagreeable, is there the composure to receive it and see how it affects us? Does it trigger like or dislike? And then can we accord with it skillfully? Or do we just get pulled into liking or disliking? Or if we taste a flavour that is agreeable or disagreeable, is there the composure, is there the restraint, is there containment to be able to see how it gives rise to liking or disliking? Or do we just get lost in those movements of mind, liking and disliking? The getting lost is the problem. There's always going to be sights and sounds and smells and so on that, that we find agreeable or disagreeable. Getting lost in them is where we create suffering. We end up struggling with life. And so indriya means the senses and Sangwara is restraint. So, so this, what I'm calling conscious composure, is something that if we haven't cultivated it, then really we're victims. We make ourselves victims of conditioning. You know, just you dislike something, you, know, you tend to reject it and. And then we reject it, doesn't mean it say it goes away, it just gets locked into our system, locked into our mental system, emotional system, physical system, nervous system. Yeah. And then little by little we build up this, uh, this big burden which is very heavy and, and difficult to carry. And I would suggest it's this burden that obstructs our awareness so we don't see, we don't see the, that which is really beautiful in life, like the potential for being kind, the potential for being selfless, the potential for being generous, the potential for cultivating goodness and contributing to one's own well-being, the well-being of others. That seeing, that possibility gets obscured because, in part, because we're carrying this burden of unreceived life, the accumulated pain it's like it kind of numbs us you know, and we end up being insensitive and doing things and saying things and thinking things that don't generate well-being for ourselves and others. You know. In fact, make things worse. You know. Maybe you've noticed how you know, when a cat gets a wound and the wound starts to heal and and then the cat won't stop scratching it. And so and it gets infected again. And So what do you do? You have to tie the, the, uh, the cat's paws up so that it can't scratch itself. And that's because the cat doesn't have sufficient discriminative intelligence to be able to reflect on cause and effect. Yes, there's this wound. And yes, it'd be good to be free from the wound. It's itchy, and so the cat doesn't have that capacity for contemplating cause and effect and so it just scratches it and gets worse and, but this is a predicament that, that many human beings find themselves in when we don't 
exercise composure when we don't yeah. inhibit we don't intentionally inhibit the conditioned reaction this may not, it may not sound like much but it's actually a big deal yeah. in the monastic training there's, there's, uh, it's talked about as these three practices which are always right to do Sometimes you find monks or nuns questioning, should I do this practice, should I do that practice, should I do the all-night sitters practice and not lie down to sleep, or should I do uh, concentration practice, or should I do meditation on leading to insight, and, and there's questions about what practice is suitable at what time. But it's understood that there's three practices which are always suitable, and the first one of them is Indriya Sangra, or conscious composure, the cultivation of conscious composure. Second one is moderation with eating, and the third one is a commitment to wakefulness. So this cultivation of conscious composure is always beneficial. It's always something that we can do. And part of it is remembering we have this facility that not all animals have, and human animals do, to reflect on cause and effect. And does this help or does it not help? Does this bring benefit for me or does it bring benefit for others or does it bring harm? Mm. So it's like a, like in, as an example, it's like in Alexander technique, those of you that are familiar with it, there's an understanding that there's a need to intentionally inhibit the contraction of muscles in the body which throw the body out of balance. Of course, it's not just the technique. The, the technique is, is aimed at, at finding balance, presence, so that the being can function in an optimal manner. Technique is important. The teacher pointing out the tendency to contract and to constrict at a certain point in a certain manner, and then learning how to intentionally inhibit that. Well, on other levels, you know, more subtle levels, not just on the level of the body, but also on the level of uh, emotional reactions, do we have to follow our painful impulses with anger? Do we have to follow the inclination to be afraid with clinging and getting anxious? Last week I spoke about the... Uh, regrettable condition that so many of us suffer from and I was calling the compulsive judging disorder and if any of you have been watching that you can see how how challenging it can be to to inhibit the reaction to that we just you get a feeling for how useful it would be if I could just stop taking sides for and against myself or life you see how when things are going well, there's this little voice inside saying, oh, I'm doing really well right now. And, and, and that may not be a problem at that time. But then when things are not going according to plan, that same voice is full of criticism, saying, I'm not doing very well. I shouldn't be this way. I should be like that. That's what I was referring to as the compulsive judging disorder. I see a lot of people who have been meditating for many years and they haven't, they haven't recognized the 
disadvantage of being caught up in this compulsive judging disorder. Yeah. When they develop a little samadhi and then they, uh, in unawareness they fill themselves with praise and feeling good about it and getting lost in the liking. Of course, a little tranquility could be agreeable, but to be taking sides for ourselves sets ourselves up with the very painful consequences of taking a position against ourselves when things don't turn out as we hope they would and we encounter some disagreeable experience. And so then we're struck with the second arrow, as the, the Buddha was suggesting, and this is avoidable if we put the right effort at the right time the right way into cultivating this conscious composure, indriya samwara. not suggesting that it's easy like with the compulsive judging disorder these people that I've, I've noticed who after many years of meditation are, are still so full of self-criticism often I suggest that they stop meditating and they don't like that because they find meditation gives them encouragement and, and nourishment in fact in some ways they're making things worse if they uh, going into subtle mind states and still taking a position for and against themselves, they become deeply divided and it's very difficult to correct that. So I strongly encourage some people just stop meditating and, or at least instead of always meditating, sometimes just sit in a chair and intentionally don't meditate, intentionally do nothing. Sit in a chair, comfortable, and refuse to meditate. Maybe it's your time to meditate, but you don't do it. You go sit in a chair and just consciously, intentionally not meditate and see what happens. Well, the chances are, before very long, that sneaky little voice will come up and say, you should be meditating. You shouldn't be restless. Oh, there it is. That's it. That's it. That is the... That is the culprit. That is the destroyer of contentment. That is what's undermining so much of the potential benefit of the good effort we make. Taking sides for and against ourselves. The compulsive judging disorder. What do we do about it? Well, if we have this intelligence, we can reflect on it. Do we judge the judging mind? Well, you can. You say, oh, I shouldn't be judging, but that's fairly superficial. Maybe we can also just drop in the suggestion yeah, okay, judging mind right, okay, I see you judging mind, yes, there you are of course you've been conditioned that way of course that's what they taught us at school yeah, the more often we can say I know and put our hands up the more praise we get and discriminative intelligence is intensely praised and so we become identified as it so it's understandable that it's there there is also the potential for knowing that discriminative tendency of mind that picking and choosing to to make the suggestion of being aware, simply being aware. Silent awareness. Silently observing the judging mind. And if it helps, you drop in the suggestion, no judging the judging mind. No judging the judging mind. No judging the judging mind. I don't have to judge the judging mind. The judging mind is just like this. It's just a tendency. It's just a cloud that passes across the sky. 
You can hate it if you like, but it doesn't, doesn't make a great deal of difference. Liking and disliking the clouds doesn't make a great deal of difference. If we can allow that movement to take place according to nature, without following the uh, heedless reactivity of blindly reacting, and the heedless reactivity of following our moods, then there's a chance the peacefulness of mind won't be disturbed. So this is you know, applying this exercise of conscious composure with regards to that tendency of mind, compulsively judging. It can be very painful. And why is it so painful? Because we can't, we can't inhibit our reaction. We're enslaved to heedless reactivity. So getting this message, uh, I think, is tremendously important. And, and uh, on my own reflection, and what, for instance, when this current crisis passes away, what can we learn from it? That altruism we can see at the moment, how can we build on that? How can we avoid falling back into self-referencing? What can we learn from this and how can we build on the altruism, on the, on the, the goodness that is being demonstrated? Well, I would suggest that recognising the benefit of this ability we have as human beings to intentionally inhibit our reactivity, to cultivate conscious composure so that we're not just driven by habitual tendencies. Something as simple and mundane as how we relate to our mobile phone, like you get a little ding or a little buzz from which says you've got a, a message coming in and, and do you have to reach out and pick it up straight away? You hear a lot these days about talk about dopamine and dopamine hits and you know, whatever it is the brain gives off that, that suggests that you're going to feel good uh, in a minute. Yeah. The feel-good factor is going about to increase. You pick up your phone and somebody's just liked you or cares about you. Do we have to immediately reach out and pick up the phone? Or, like the cat uh, inhibiting its... Uh, scratching its wound, can we choose to not react? Well, we can, actually, potentially. Now, just using willful repression, that's not going to last forever. It's very energy extravagant. We might have to start off with willful, you just going like clenching your fist and say, I'm not going to touch my phone, I'm not going to touch my phone. Maybe we have to start like that. That's like Ajahn Chai used to talk about how exercising restraint and said in the beginning it's like sila dhamma sila dhamma sila dhamma it's like the dhamma of restraint but then eventually it's dhamma 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 which is basically there's restraint based on understanding it's very different if we receive moralistic injunctions to to not react when the phone rings well they can be building up a counter reaction and, and make things even more imbalanced but if it's based on wise reflection recognizing that if we don't develop this spiritual muscle, so to speak, to inhibit heedless reactivity, then we're enslaved to it. I also personally developed this when I 
when I'm sending text messages to people. I know a lot of people use uh, a different language, which I sometimes can't understand. When text speak and everything's abbreviated, and and I I have a fondness for being a bit speedy anyway. So I choose to refuse to learn text speak, and I I write my text messages more or less as I would write a normal letter. I spell it out and even use punctuation. I I don't want to be driven by the force of technology, which is very speedy. It's not harmonious with much of us. The body can't keep up with the speed of technology. So I choose to slow down. And similar to how I've, for years, I've resisted the idea of having a microwave oven in the monastery here. A lot of the supporters of the monastery over the years have tried to persuade me to accept a microwave oven. And I said, uh, why do you want a microwave oven for? And I said, well, it's quicker, it's easier. I said, well, just because it's quick and easy doesn't mean it's good. So this place here is about how to return to balance, how to, how to remember what matters most deeply to us, how to train our faculties so we're not just reacting according to likes and dislikes. So as it happens right now in this current crisis situation, I've agreed to, well, we've got a a microwave oven. As soon as this situation passes, it's going to get put away again. If I had my way, I would also um, have people park their car at the bottom of the hill down there in the car park and walk up the hill so that by the time they got up here, they've really slowed down and then come into the Dhamma Hall, grounded, presence in front of the shrine and carefully, mindfully bow. Bow three times. Exercising this intentional inhibition in the service of being more present, more alert, more aware. So I hope this consideration this evening is encouraging in your own understanding of the value of the place of conscious composure and potentially finding new level of ability. Thank you very much for your attention.